and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group, dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr Mimi O'Neill and I'm thrilled to welcome you, or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field and also to make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So, whether you are a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who are sharing their latest research findings and providing practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. Our guest this week is Dr. Caroline Kerwin, who is currently a university teacher in psychology of music at the University of Sheffield. She has conducted and published her research on synesthesia associated with music, including the role of embodied and inactive accounts of music cognition in music colour synesthesia, arguing that the condition might be better understood as a sensory motor phenomenon. Caroline received her PhD from the University of Sheffield with a thesis entitled Music Colour Synesthesia and Conceptual Correspondence Grounded in Action. Caroline is also a consulting editor for Music ICNCI and she is currently the treasurer of ESCOM. We're so pleased to welcome Caroline as a guest on this podcast. So hi, Caroline, welcome to the Pom Pod, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. If I may, I'd like to start by asking you how you identify or how you situate your work in terms of music psychology, psychology of music, music cognition, empirical musicology, etc. Okay, well, most of my research has been about music and synesthesia, um, which I'll explain in a little while, but it's sort of, it sort of started to err between, towards I'm using music as a sort of a medium to sort of explore other parts of, of cognition generally. So looking at typical cognition and sort of trying to get an understanding on how our brain works. Um, and with music color synesthesia, which I'm going to explain in a little bit, is sort of why sometimes things that have been unusual um, can help to explain how people tend to think in a more typical way. And I tend to use music as an example in this respect. But and so... Um, but really and truly, I'm trying to sort of actually get an insight into general cognition rather than just music. But music is quite useful because, I mean, my background is um, is music anyhow. I went to Royal Northern College of Music as a student um, many, many years ago. And so always been, you know, sort of had that at the heart of, of um, what I wanted to look at. But it's just as my research has continued, it's sort of just erred away. Music has been very, is, is the medium I'm using, but not necessarily the focus always, which is a bit naughty, I suppose, for this particular podcast. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great to have the different perspectives on it. So, yeah. so thanks for sharing with us. And so as you say, your research, to this point at least, um, has focused on the experience of synesthesia associated with music. Could you just explain what that means and sort of why you became interested in the topic? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, synesthesia has been described as sort of like um, a connection of senses. So one sense, um, for example, I don't know, um, sound might be connected with an, a visual experience um, of color or shapes or something like that. You know, Some people do have this and there's lots and lots of different types. Um, 
sometimes it can be sort of letters um, and sort of give you a sensation of colour or something like that. My own experience and the reason why I started off doing this research was when I started my master's course at Sheffield, we were talking about something called cross-modal correspondences and which is for those who are not familiar with it this means the sort of thing when people tend to uh, sort of um, associate high pitches with height in space or brightness or something and low pitches with, with darkness and you know that sort of thing so most people make those sort of correlations and we were talking about this in class and somebody put up um, a red square and a blue square on the screen and said to me I said oh okay well you know for illustration in music some people might Think the red square relates to A major and and the blue square to C major and I thought well actually that's the wrong way around you know and sort of like and said so for me it was completely the wrong way around um but when saying so nobody else seemed to understand what I was talking about so I discovered that this there was a term synesthesia that had to do with the experience I have for shapes and colors and things like that for when I listen to music and association with colors with musical keys and that sort of thing um which sort of thought I thought oh I've always done this ever since you know I can remember um and it's obviously something that not everybody experiences and that's what set off my interest in seeing why my experience was different you know and how it worked um how it affected my experience of music and if anybody else did it as well so that's where it came from <laughs> great and I think you've talked before about other members of your family perhaps having a similar experience yeah my daughter does um she also has um she'll she'll describe something as sort of sounds as gold or this and the other and she has what she calls an aura or something for certain people and some people's names have colors and that sort of thing so hers is not exactly the same as mine um but there is some research that suggests those sorts of things might be hereditary or are passed down in families in some way generally through the female line there is some research yes. that. so um but this is you know still under debate and that sort of thing but yeah so and also my I think one of my sons had no idea but said that something was orange when and I thought mm, maybe you do as well but he doesn't speak about it very often so I mean I don't know potentially. Can you give us any insight into the causes or the mechanisms behind the experience of synesthesia? Yeah I mean there's been historically they've always been considered to be um, neurological invasives on purely perceptual um, there's two main theories going on um, about that. There's one called the hyperconnectivity theory, which suggests that there are certain areas that remain connected that are, um, into, into maturation. So when we're, when we're infants, apparently there's lots and lots of connections going on that, um, that get pruned out as we mature. And um, possibly there are certain that remain in certain people. So perhaps from the visual areas and the, and the um, color areas in the brain, for example, that remain. And there's been various bits of research um, to look at this and some support this theory and, and some don't entirely. So, and then another one, the disinhibited feedback theory, which um, suggests that instead of having a one-way stream of uh, information going in the brain, there's going two ways instead. Um, again, same sort of thing. There's been certain um, studies that have supported this and, and certain ones that have not. In fact, those two theories could potentially exist in, uh, together. You know, there's no reason why not. But also there's other theories saying that, you know, um, certain types of synesthesia may come about in a different way. So there's not one just mechanism to explain all of it. But, for example, concept seems to play quite a lot of um, a, a large role in certain forms. Um, maybe um, 
um, you think about sort of there's been some some investigation into sort of um, professional swimmers there's a couple of guys who had um, colors for certain strokes um, and when they were shown in a laboratory situation that uh, pictures of the of various strokes they still got the sensation of color for example they didn't have to physically be doing the stroke or in the pool or anything so it wasn't necessarily sensory it had the concept of it and in music for some of my investigations was about um, the concept of musical key so you don't have to necessarily hear it not necessarily being perceptual as such but the, the concept of it thinking about d major thinking about maybe you know the hand shape or whatever it is that you need to produce that key is enough to elicit um, a color sensation or a shape sensation or a texture or something like that so it's sort of maybe maybe many different ways it's in you know it comes about in different people and um, not always from the same single mechanism i mean it's so interesting thank you so would you say in your opinion um based on your experience is the experience of synesthesia a blessing or is it a curse and does that maybe change depending on if we're working with music regularly or not? i think for someone who I mean, from my own perspective for someone who's always had it i don't know what it's like not to have it so the experience is that i suppose you know some people have said who, who have i spoken i've spoken to who've got synesthesia are saying oh he's saying to me as a right-handed person what's it like to be left-handed well i don't know because you know it's that, that sort of thing so um i don't think from my own perspective it's in any way disadvantageous but i don't think it's it's not usually looked in in that way there's two different ways people have reported experiencing synesthesia one is a projector which means that their colors or sensations are projected outside their body so they may have more interference with you know the outside world than than someone who on the other hand who's called an associator who holds things in their mind's eye and has a sort of like a a feeling of color a feeling of shape or texture rather than actually um seeing something beyond their body so maybe those two things interfere differently i also people have it some people have it very mildly which i would describe mine and some very very vividly and there have been reports anecdotal reports of some people finding it um intrusive sometimes but i rather depends i i would say it's just my you know a certain person's lived experience of how they you know interpret the world around them not necessarily i would not usually thought of as something that's detrimental in any way well, good. I mean, that's great to hear. We were also recently both at a conference um, and someone someone asked you after your presentation uh, whether you had investigated this experience with people who might be blind or even just colourblind. Um, and you gave a really interesting answer. So I wondered if you'd just share that with us again on the pod. Sure. Um, when we were talking about that, we were talking, first of all, to start with colourblindness. And I actually spoke with someone after um, that came up, actually, in the conference um, who has, was colourblind and had said, Sort of corroborated what, what, what I thought. And with color blindness, yes, I'm sure they can experience synesthesia, you know, sort of just because you may have a different, you know, a problem differentiating between certain colors at certain times doesn't mean you don't have an experience of color. Your experience of color yourself is your own. Um, and so it doesn't really matter, I suppose, if you're looking at a green and I'm it does not quite the same shade as mine. How can I tell what anybody experiences as blue, red, green, etc.? It's all sort of relative. So I would thought that in that case, it's quite possible to experience a synesthesia for colour, colourblind or otherwise. And indeed, the guy in the room, since when I spoke to afterwards, said exactly that. Yeah, you know, sort of my colours are my colours. I don't know what it is. You know, it's, I know mm -hmm. all the difference and 
so yeah just finds it difficult to differentiate occasionally in certain circumstances with the blindness this is quite interesting because um one of the guys who was one of my participants became blind having uh, later on in life and found that at that point they started to experience synesthesia um for for music and keys and, and things like that and some another um lady had said had also that they now experience blue very strongly when playing the piano but didn't before they had some some problem but if you're congenitally blind i haven't there is i think i haven't come across any um research or anecdotes from anyone saying that they experience synesthesia um because of their because they're I suppose it depends on how it's caused and what the reason you know the reason you have the blindness because you know we all you don't synesthesia isn't so much about actual vision and actual color um and indeed you know you could say if you sometimes if you press your eyelids really hard <laughs> you get a sensation of all sorts of different colors we're not actually seeing anything it's a different it's something else going on it really depends I suppose which part of your brain is or which part of the where the damage is you know and, and that sort of thing so I don't I'd like to speak to more people who sure. are actually blind and see if they do have any experience because it's not all about color either it's mm -hmm. also about shapes and textures and what their experience of um listening to music for example might be um and what those things mean and concepts and stuff and what that brings about it might to do with more to do with touch it might be to do with something else a different you know it's not exclusively color but it's a very interesting area and uh yeah so why why do we have this strong association synesthesia and color why do we get hung up on the color i think it's most often um reported okay. i think you know um frequently people talk about color sensation and this sort of thing and maybe but also I think there's not an awful lot written about music and, and texture and, and taste and things like that but actually um but it is but not everybody has it either people yeah. I think most frequently the experience is color okay um maybe that's why or or not even color but shapes uh, not big pardon shades quite often people report dark and light and greys and different variations on that as well so we're not talking about multicolored sort of rainbow lights all over the place or anything or fireworks necessarily it's just it might be just a sort of a, a, a dark and light shade but why I mean I think that's most often reported and has been reported and also in the past um most research on synesthesia was to do with grapheme synesthesia and I'm talking about letters here and numbers and things like that and in that respect um people have, have often re reported color and that seemed to be the most principally investigated type of synesthesia for quite a long time then music came along and then people start describing their experience and and talking other terms as well and we've you know more and more types of synesthesia have come about as people have become more aware of it because often people don't even know that it's a thing but nobody else experiences it they think it's just them and well they don't even realize it's any different from anybody else um, so over time, you know, people have reported more and more types, I think. Yeah, interesting. Um, so just quickly as, a, as an additional question, how prevalent is the experience of synesthesia? It has been reported that it's, like, it's about 4% of the population are likely to have some form of synesthesia. And I'm not talking about just music here, I'm talking about any type of form, but it actually might be more than that because of what I've said, a lot of people don't even realise they have it is any different to anybody else's experience 
Um, and so it might be more prevalent than they think. Well, there's just so many different types as well that something they don't even realize is essentially some kind of synesthetic form might you know, not have been reported. So maybe more than that, probably is, I think. <laughs> The International Conference of Students of Systematic Musicology is an annual student-run event designed to allow advanced students in the fields of systematic musicology and music science to meet and discuss their research. This year the SISMUS Conference will be held in Sheffield from the 18th to the 20th of October. SISMUS is dedicated to including a broad range of topics including music perception, cognition and psychology, music therapy, education and sociology, music modelling and information retrieval, acoustics, theory and analysis and culture, semiotics and philosophy. Keynote speakers include internationally renowned researchers working in the field of systematic musicology and music science. This year the keynote speakers are Professor Lauren Trainer from McMaster University's Department of Psychology, Neuroscience and Behaviour, Dr Maiko Kawabata from the Royal College of Music and Open University, and Dr Julian Cespedes Guevara of Assessi University's Department of Psychological Studies. There will also be a range of panel discussions and workshops, paper and poster presentations and opportunities for networking. Sismus 23 is a hybrid event. Visit sites.google.com slash sheffield.ac.uk slash 23 for more information. We look forward to seeing you there. As well as chatting to me for the podcast, you are going to be presenting in the Music Cognition Matters speaker series. Can you give us a brief overview of what we can expect from your presentation? Yeah, sure. And as I said, you know, all the research I've done today is all been focused on synesthesia and, and music in particular and although it's not synesthesia is not as we said you know we said it's not particularly detrimental or anything it's not looked as a pathology or an illness or a disability in any type of way it is nevertheless unusual atypical type of thinking um, which would come under the umbrella of neurodivergent thinking I think and the next step I want to look at is expanding this view of looking at like atypical thinking and trying to embrace this diversity um, within the, the realms of music cognition. And instead of, you know, a lot of um, research in music has been to do with sort of neurodivergent conditions such as ADHD or autism and things like that have always been about sort of healing or treating in a music therapy type of way. Um, and rather than just seeing using looking at it that way as um, something that needs to be treated, I'd rather I want to investigate and look at uh, the possibility of um, embracing these neurodivergent ways of thinking and looking at their strengths and how, you know, sort of like how they can be used in a good way, excuse me, I said in a good way, not, not you know, a good way, but to look at a more beneficial way of looking at it um, and, instead, and embracing these differences rather or individual differences. Um, in terms of, of music cognition and how they, you know, you know, how we think about music generally. And I think, you know, with, um, with synesthesia, I've sort of alluded a little bit to there might be sort of all different types of synesthesia and that we might actually be on a certain continuum, I suppose, you know, sort of with typical cognition. And granted that, you know, we have, there are tip, um, neurodivergent conditions which make living normally in, in normal um, society quite difficult. There is a variation in between. And I want to sort of look at all of these in that sort of term and um, try and, yeah, sort of try and maybe sort of look forward to do the next type of 
part of research of sort of including participants from these different groups in constructing some kind of experiments or studies together, which better suit their way of thinking and to investigate different types of musical thought and cognition. Um, yeah, and sort of that's what I want to do. But I'm, in the talk, I this is a very, very early stage and I want to sort of like briefly um, bring the theoretical side of it or a slight background to it um, and then discuss a little bit what I've done already with synesthesia. Uh, with a pointing towards future research that I'd like to do in this direction. So that's sort of what you're going to get. Great. That sounds great. Um, it's really interesting. It's a really interesting perspective, actually, to take um, the challenging of the medical model in terms of neurodiversity and, and the broad spectrum of individual experiences with music. Um, you set up synesthesia, actually, on a spectrum from synesthesia to typical music cognition. Could you explain a bit more about why you conceive of it in this way? And indeed, why you have chosen to frame your talk with the title Breaking the Mould, Embracing Neurodiversity in Musical Thinking and Cognition? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, as far as breaking the mould with synesthesia is concerned, I think, I mean, historically, a lot of researchers try to put it as sort of like separate and distinct from typical cognition. And um, I've already alluded a little bit to sort of cross-modal um, correspondences. We're talking about people generally perceiving things that, you know, sort of like high pitch notes being brighter and low pitch notes, you know, being, being darker and more saturated in color, for example, and certain shapes being associated with certain, you know, a, a spiky shape being associated with the name Kiki or a rounded shape being associated with the name Booba, for example, and not many people would have it the other way around. So I'm trying to sort of explain also that synesthesia may have a grounding um, in typical cross-modal associations, for example, and that for certain people who have the propensity to have synesthesia, rather than it being completely and totally separate, they just might think about more abstract concepts such as music as it unfolds over time in, in a slightly different way from um, typical cognition, whatever that may be. But I'd like to say, you know, there is no particular typical musical brain necessarily. Um, and so I'm, when I'm thinking about synesthesia being on a continuum in that respect, um, it has a place somewhere in the way that all of us experience our environment and our, you know, sort of the, the world we live in, a lived experience for a synesthete and how they experience music. Um, may have its groundings in the same sort of correspondences that um, a, a typical thinker may have, for example. And I say typical rather than normal on purpose and that sort of thing. And I think really that's the same with, I'm trying to find similarities, I suppose, in, in, in thinking and they're just the way different people try to experience their environment and, and also in sensory motor, sensory motor terms as well, which is part of my research with synesthesia is a way we may um, sort of a more, have a more embodied ex, um, explanation for synesthesia and maybe other conditions too, or neurodivergent conditions. So I can't tell you an awful lot more about that other than that it's just the, at, at the moment, because I, as far as the neurodivergent, other neurodivergent conditions are concerned, but it's something I want to, to look at. Now, as part of this speaker series, we are also inviting presenters to issue a call to action or just a prompt for further thought and discussion. So if this is a topic that is of interest and you would like to be part of that conversation, then make sure that you join us for Caroline's presentation, which will be Friday the 12th of May at 1pm British Summertime. The details can be found in the show notes for this episode. Mm -hmm. 
So this research that we have been discussing so far formed part of your PhD, I believe. Um, what are the next steps with this work? Or is there is there something else exciting that you are currently working on that we should look out for? Well, yes, the synesthesia side of it formed part of, well, formed all of my PhD research. Um, and these, this sort of like um, move along into look embracing other neurodivergent um, conditions in, in music cognition is the next step. And this is where I want to go next to expand the type of theories um, and research into these areas and to encompass neuro, the whole you know, neurodivergent thinking under the entire umbrella of such um, within music cognition and to perhaps um, pull together a proposal for future research and to engage participants who self-report possibly as neurodivergent to work with me to um, produce some studies that most suit the way their brain works. I mean we've been we've got um, various types of models that might work very well with typical cognition, which may not suit neurodivergent individuals so well. Um, and it would be great to work alongside them to develop some research and um, investigations to shed some more light on how different we are person to person um, and the way we think about not just music, but everything particularly, you know, in our experience, our lived experience of the world for us individuals. And I think that's what I'd like to do next. Well, I very much look forward to seeing that. My final question that I ask all guests is what are the most interesting questions that have not yet been explored in music psychology, music cognition? What are the topics that interest you and that we can still learn more about? Or have you read something particularly interesting recently that you would recommend to others? The question that I think crosses disciplines for me, for me is complete, is the most interesting question is the one about consciousness constantly and I think you know what it means to be me and have my experience of the world around me um, and my conscious experience of listening to music and being in the world we still can't put a title and an explanation for what consciousness is and when we become conscious and what why I'm different to you and vice versa and these philosophical questions absolutely fascinate me and continue to do so and I'm sure and very many people as well, you know, there's sort of so many discussions still going on going. Um, and I'm hoping that my small contribution to this discussion will um, help these things move along. Um, um, and I, I think for me, that is the most important to, for me. That is the most important. You sort of like understanding conscious and consciousness and cognition from person to person. Um, and like looking at synesthesia and neurodivergent conditions, other neurodivergent conditions, by looking at something that's unusual, sometimes it can give you an insight into how the more typical works. Um, yeah, so that's what I want to continue to contribute to towards. Fantastic. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all your expertise and your research and your knowledge with us. I'm very much looking forward to your Music Cognition Matters presentation. You can watch Caroline's Music Cognition Matters presentation at one o'clock this Friday, the 12th of May, online. The link is in the show notes and can also be found at mus-cog-matters.glitch.me. Thanks for listening, and I hope to welcome you back for our next episode.